0: This is How on Earth, the show that makes you smarter. Today is Tuesday, February 5th, 2013. I'm your host, Jim Pullen. Boulder's Dr. David Wineland shared the 2012 Nobel Prize in Physics with Frenchman Serge Haroche. The Nobel Committee cited their groundbreaking experimental methods that enable measuring and manipulation of individual quantum systems. I visited with Dave at his office at the National Institute for Standards and Technology in late January.
1: How long have you worked uh, here at, at NIST in Boulder? So, let's say a little over 37 years now. This was actually my first job after uh, graduate school and a postdoctoral position.
2: There are a lot of uh, folks here that have worked here multiple decades, 30 years. I, I, I've talked to folks who were here in the 1950s that are still, that are still here and actually right, just steps away from the very first lab they worked in. So, uh, are there a lot of you who who've been here a long time like that?
1: Well, I I mean maybe our group is a good example when I I came in 1975 and uh we put together this group uh using atomic ions and uh initially it was four of us, but basically the the four of us have been together ever since. So, uh you know, it's uh it's it's been a good environment, and nobody's had a great reason to leave. I would say. Right. So once you're once you're here, you yeah, it's a good place to stay. What did you
2: first work on when you came?
1: Well, when I when I was hired in in 1975, the, my first task was to to get the uh, the cesium atomic clock up and running, and this this device had actually been built by uh another fellow here uh david glaze and uh but there was some pressure to get this get the clock working and so we worked together to to get the clock working at that time and then uh about a year and a half later uh, my boss at that time helmut helvig was able to get some uh support from nist to start a kind of a new project and that was this work on uh on uh, using atomic ions for clocks and one of the first tasks we set out on was to demonstrate this idea of laser cooling which is important for clocks so that was, that was a, a great <laughs> point in my career to, to be able to start this project on the, on the ions and the cooling in particular.
2: Now the the first cesium clock or the cesium clock that you worked on when you first came here it was a a different technology than the ion uh, clocks that required laser cooling.
1: That's right. So so the uh the, in those days the the cesium atomic clocks they would they they uh uh worked on the principle that basically an a, a beam of of atoms was made by simply evaporating a Having a, a a cell of cesium and uh, heating it up, and having a small hole in the cell, and atoms would stream out of that. And uh, so those clocks, uh, the so-called atomic beam clocks in those days, would uh, kind of measure the atoms on the on the fly as they as they went through this apparatus. Uh, the one of the advantages of of using atomic ions. Uh, is that uh, we can hold them in one place, so our uh, you know the time we can observe their properties goes up dramatically, and and that helps improve the the uh, both the precision and the accuracy of the clocks.
2: So you're looking at the vibration, whether it's a cesium atom or whether it's an ion.
1: Yeah, that's true. The the basic idea of a atomic clock is actually. Uh, I, Pretty simple. I mean, you you either cesium atoms or the ions we use. They all have characteristic vibration, and uh, what we do is we want to synchronize a an external oscillator uh, that provides radiation at a certain frequency, and the the atomic clock apparatus then provides a way for us to synchronize the the oscillations in this external oscillator with the natural oscillations in the atoms, either cesium or the ions. And uh, when once we reach this synchronization, then uh, we simply count the cycles of the oscillator that produce the radiation uh, to, to generate time. So basically when so many cycles go by, that generates a, a second, for example.
2: So how many cycles do have to go by uh, for, for the original cesium clock? Yeah, so the,
1: let's see if I remember. <laughs> it's uh, nine one nine one nine two six three one seven seven zero cycles of the cesium uh, so called hyperfine structure. When when that many cycles go by, uh, that define that's actually the definition of the second
2: and the original cesium clock wasn't as accurate as you folks wanted to it to be why why wasn't it as accurate
1: well i this this comes into a number of technical uh reasons and uh but one of the one of the reasons uh, i had already mentioned is that uh the precision and accuracy that we're able to achieve is, is helped by uh if we can if we can hold the atoms and observe them for a longer time. So, uh, typically in uh, in the uh, in the cesium beam clock, the old cesium beam clocks, the atoms would fly through the apparatus in in a few milliseconds. And in the atomic ions uh, case, we've actually uh, in one of our early clocks we could uh, could hold the atoms and irradiate them for about 10 minutes. So it was this dramatic increase in observation time, we say, from on the order of a millisecond to 10 minutes, and that made a, that's one of the reasons that, that the, the, you know, the ions uh, uh, potentially are better. There's other problems to deal with, but, uh, but that was certainly one of the advantages of being able to hold atoms in one place. And so that is the work that
2: led you to the path that, that you're on now, uh, trapping ions, uh, exciting them, measuring their excitation. Or do I have the excitation part right?
1: Uh, no, that's right, yeah. So uh, I think that, as I say, there's a lot of ingredients that go in to making an accurate clock other than just the, the time we observe them. But that was an important feature. Uh the other thing is that in order to control the environmental effects uh uh precisely it turns out with the with the uh when we make a clock based on ions, we can do that we can do that best with just a single ion in what we call a trap, this place where we hold the ions. So uh so a lot of the work uh when we started on the work on atomic ions it went into uh, developing techniques to isolate uh, single ions and then uh, cool them to very low temperatures.
2: When you get a Nobel Prize, it has to be for some pragmatic research, I guess. Albert Einstein was awarded the Nobel Prize not for general relativity or special relativity, but for the photoelectric effect. Tell us about your Nobel award.
1: Well, that, I mean, actually, the <laughs> the the the, uh, the way the citation reads is actually. Pretty general and uh, it was uh, basically for developing techniques where we could hold individual atoms in our case uh, in in one place and then carefully manipulate their properties their quantum properties and uh, one of the aspects was that was uh, it was that was cited was we can do this without changing their properties and uh, so there's various ways of doing that. So um, my the the person I shared with uh, Serge Haroche, who works in Paris, he uh, they, we 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 kind of did complementary projects. Uh, we used light, uh, particularly laser beams, to control the properties of the uh, the atoms. And in his case, he used atoms to control the properties of light that uh, light that's stored in what we say a cavity. Or it bounces between back and forth between mirrors, for example. So, um, so there's a lot of commonality in the experiments, but there was this basic difference that I just explained to. Him, he was controlling light with atoms, and we were controlling atoms with light.
2: There must be very broad applications to these techniques.
1: Well, I, I <laughs> we would like to see that. I you know the uh there there certainly are very identifiable tech, uh applications these uh a good example is the atomic clocks that's probably been our most visible and uh uh useful thing to date in being able to to manipulate single atoms and and, and single photons as search as the, the i think though what you know is is common in in Physics is that you know when we set out on these experiments, we often don't have a have certainly don't have all the applications in mind. And actually, a good example of that is that when the laser was invented, uh, it wasn't at all clear what it what it would be useful for. And of course, it's now ubiquitous in our lives, although we may not see them. You know, we certainly rely on them from scanners and supermarkets and and they're you know they're obviously an important part of entertainment though. you know the devices we use uh, for watching movies are based on you know there's laser components in there and things like that so uh i wouldn't say there's so there's not a maybe a lot of applications of this uh of the techniques we developed uh, one that's on the horizon is the uh the idea of making a quantum computer and uh these these these, uh, the, you know, the, we're able to actually demonstrate some of the elements of the quantum computer, but so far it's it doesn't work well enough. The uh, you know the errors in the you know logic gates are are too high to make it of general importance. But I think I think uh, you know we're optimistic as we improve the technology that this this device in some form actually may may become a reality. You
2: uh, you publish and work on quantum computers. Then,
1: that's right. Yeah. So one of our uh, uh, one of our programs now, which is actually a NIST program, is not not specifically devoted to quantum computing, but more uh, say quantum metrology, quantum measurement, and certainly measurement is at the key of what uh, NIST does. So more generally in this area of quantum measurement. Uh, the reason NIST pursues it is since NIST is a metrology measurement lab. We we want to uh, develop devices that are that are made that their sensitivity is only limited by quantum mechanics, and uh, so that's generally the the kind of thing we hope to approach. This this idea of of, of using quantum systems to make a computer is a bit of a it's a, a bit of a spin off from from this metrology aspect but uh potentially it has very important uh implications down the line which was why we're spending a fair amount of time working that uh, on that as well as working on the clocks can you give me a a
2: rundown of how a, uh one of these uh quantum uh, computers works uh, i've looked at it myself and it's a bit of a head scratcher yeah well
1: i think that you know the one I can give a, a at least a flavor of why, where we can start to see how this might be interesting. Is so uh, just to start off, one of the kind of demonstration of experiments we do, which is uh, just to give an idea of the weirdness of quantum mechanics, is that as I say, we in our in our experiments on atomic ions, we 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 hold the ions, we store them in a what we call a trap. And but what a good analogy is you can think of a say a marble in a bowl and the marble can roll back and forth now we can we can hold our atomic marbles in a in a bowl that's made out of these electric field configurations but the the still the analogy is pretty good so what but what we can do with our atomic marble is that uh as it rolls back and forth of course we can we can realize a condition where at some instant of time it's on the left side of the bowl and later it's on the right side of the bowl. Uh, But we can also realize a condition where at some instance of time it's on the left side of the bowl and the right side of the bowl at the same time. Now this makes no sense in our ordinary day experience, but we can do this. Um, So if you'll pause for a moment, if you accept that idea... This is called superposition, where it's in in this case can the, the our atomic marble can be in two places at the same time. Uh, well, what we can also do with uh, with our atomic ions is that we can make so-called superposition states of their internal energy levels. So, basically, all all atoms, including ions, they they can exist in different energy states governed by the say the for example, the simplest case is whether the electron is in its lowest orbit or a higher higher orbit classically. Uh, so those define different energy levels, and and we can with our the techniques that that uh, both Savers and I and of course many others have developed uh, allow us to we can either put the atom in the lowest say the lowest energy state. We could. We could label that to be a zero, and we could put it in the next higher energy state and label that to be a one, and we could make a memory just like the the binary memories in our the computers we're used to using. Uh, uh, and in fact, we can, we can do that. We can put it, we can make a memory that way with many ions in our traps. But we can also, for any individual. Bit or atom, we can put it in a superposition state of these energy levels. So what that means is, if, if, if for a computer memory, is it's we can make a memory where it's either not either a zero or a one. It can be a zero and a one at the same time. So why this one way to see why this might be interesting is if we I'll take the example if we have three bits. So in a classical computer, meaning like our laptops and so on, uh, three bits could store a single binary number, let's say 101. But the in this, if you'll buy this idea of superposition with our quantum bits, our so-called qubits, then a, a three-bit register could simultaneously be in the states 000, 001, 010 up to 111. That's eight, 8 Possibilities at the same time. Uh, Eight is two to the power three. And the reason I express it that way is that we get this, what's called exponential scaling. If we add in, say, a fourth bit, it would be, there would be two to the four numbers or 16 numbers that we could store at the same time. And so a dramatic example is if we take 300 bits and we can actually do this with our with our quantum memories. Is that we can, uh, uh, of course, three hundred bits in a classical computer might store roughly a line of text. A uh, a uh, uh, in our quantum computer, we can in the same sense of the example I gave for three bits, we can make we can store all the numbers from zero up to two to the three hundred minus one. Uh, and uh, that's about in decimal. That's about ten to the ninetieth. Ten to the ninetieth is more than all the elementary particles in the universe. So that you know, a dramatic way of saying what we can do is, with our three hundred quantum bits, we can store more information than if we if we if we made a classical computer made out of all the matter in the universe. So you get the idea. Well, this sounds pretty good, you know. The other thing we can do, which also is pretty good, is that we can, when we make this so called superposition of all possible numbers, when we perform operations, these quantum logic operations, it turns out that we are operating on all these numbers at once. So it's like a massive parallel processor. So those two ingredients sound really great. And, you know, (laughs) of course, there's the catch. And the big catch comes from. The, the the limitations of quantum mechanics is that although we can make these superposition states and they're very delicate uh, that's one of the problems but the but the but the clincher is that when we actually go in and try to read out the information we can only measure one number one binary number uh out of all these 2 to the 3 you know 2 to the n possibilities uh, so so what that means is it still means that's a you know we can't read out all these two to the end possibilities. We can only read out one number. So what we have to do is devise our algorithms, our programs in such a way that that one number we finally we say we project onto, we measure can give us some useful information. And in fact, there's not a there's there's not a huge number of applications where that uh but where that might be useful but i can give an example of two which were uh well, the one which actually got <laughs> uh, you know certainly the government interested in this in this project is that uh around 1995 a uh, computer theorist peter shore uh came up with the idea he showed that if you could uh, uh if you could build this quantum computing device that i briefly described that uh, it, then he came up with an algorithm, a series of logic operations, that showed if we could, uh, that we could factorize large numbers efficiently. Now this sounds like kind of an esoteric thing, but I think many people probably out there know is that basically all modern encryption, when you buy an item with your credit card over the web, the, the coding, the encryption, uh, is done with a system that that drives its security from the inability to efficiently factorize large numbers. Uh, so what that means is if we could build this device and uh would compromise buying things on a credit card, then of course it'd compromise the national security too for obvious reasons or the secret messages and so on. So uh, that's certainly why the government <laughs> is interested in this, and uh, I think uh, you know. At the same breath, I have to say, I, I you know, we can only do crude operations so far, and you know, I don't think anybody has to worry about uh, the compromising their credit card for quite a while. So, uh, but nevertheless, these we you know we feel that uh, the, you know the roadblocks to making a, a really useful device uh, are technical there's nothing fundamental and they are very hard technical problems but nevertheless i mean it's still the promise of some of these applications are uh, are out there another one that I, I i should mention which is you know the part of probably the hardest problem even though it got things rolling was this idea of factorizing uh to do useful factorizing uh, uh that is huge very long numbers which are used in encryption systems the That's about the hardest thing we can think about doing. Applying a quantum computer to so, what most scientists and physicists are interested in, is that probably with a much more modest quantum computer, that we can actually solve. We we can basically make a quantum simulator, which means that we can we can map another quantum problem we're trying to solve onto our quantum computer. And, and 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 solve that problem. And a good example might be uh that does have practical significance is for example molecules that uh our are, are classical computers in, uh run out of steam when we try to simulate their quantum properties if the molecule has, you know, more than ten or twenty atoms involved in it. And uh uh we you know we're hopeful that that we can actually we're not so far away maybe in the terms of numbers that we can handle now that we may be able to solve these, these say, these problems like solving the dynamics of a molecule. And the reason that might, you know, eventually become important is because, you know, maybe we could eventually test the behavior of drugs before actually having to make them and, uh, you know, start at their property. So this is, this is a bit out there, but I would say, um, you know, I think most of us are, are hopeful that maybe in the next decade or so we're able to make a small quantum system. Well, actually, that actually solve a, a problem that a, a classical computer, a normal computer, can't solve. So that's the hope, but still a lot of a lot of work to do yet.
0: That was Dr. David Wineland, who shared the 106th Nobel Prize in Physics in 2012. In the second part of this interview, to be aired later, I talked to Dave about the human side of winning the Nobel Prize. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Our executive producer this quarter is Shelly Schlender. For KGNU's How on Earth, I'm Jim Pullen.